You may be seated, and let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for, for Jesus. We're thankful for what he has shown us about you. We're thankful for his courage, his wisdom, his integrity. We're thankful for how cool he was. We're thankful that he found us. Jesus, we feel when we're not like overwhelmed with busyness during this part of the season, as much as any time, we feel uh, the press of your love and we feel the warmth of your presence and we feel, we feel gratitude for knowing you and being invited into you. I want to pray today that you will break open our chests and that you'll communicate yourself to us because we don't get you unless you show us. I pray today that you'd be preparing us even now to let go of everything that gets us wrapped up and makes us stumble, that we would let go of everything that enslaves us and keeps us from what we were designed to be, that we would surrender that we would let go, and that we would take up instead you and what you have for us. Look, sometimes, Lord, we don't even really know what that means, and so today we ask for the miracle, really, of having you communicate to us what that means, taking you up and embracing you and letting go of everything else. Today. We celebrate your coming, Lord Jesus. Hear us as we offer all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of you. In the strong name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. When the Magi saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and of myrrh. One of the traditions we have in my house each Christmas is lighting the Advent wreath. So we light one candle each of the four weeks leading up to Christmas, and then we light the fifth candle, the center candle, on Christmas Eve. It's just one of the ways that we prepare to celebrate Christ's birth. Another tradition we have is that after lighting the candles, we get to open one gift. So this gift is from my brother Tommy. Now, some years he gives amazingly elaborate, thought-out gifts, and other years he just gives me gift cards. So I'm guessing by the envelope, it's a gift card kind of year. Merry Christmas, sister. Please go outside to meet your present. Oh, my. I wonder what this is about. I'll be right back. Oh, my gosh. This is pretty intense from 900 miles away. Oh, he's so cute. Oh, he'll go perfect with the three others we have at home. I can't wait to cuddle him and snuggle with him and teach him to chase the laser light. And then there's the feeding and the watering and the brushing and the vet visit visits and finding someone to watch him. Um, Karina Salee, I have one more for you. Well, he did not abide by my mother's number one rule of gift giving, which is no live presence. This is a really demanding gift. I sure hope he's worth it. I'm going to read a story to you 
a story of Vicki. Through a difficult set of circumstances, Vicki learned that sometimes gifts come with their own set of demands. It was a whirlwind romance. Although I had known Dave in high school, it was years later when we truly connected, first through Facebook, then through dozens of texts each day and hours on the phone each night. After a few months of doing the long-distance thing, I drove over 500 miles to visit him and was greeted on the other end of the trip with two of my favorite things, yellow Powerade and a box of s'more Pop-Tarts. I guess he had been paying attention during all those 2 million phone calls. This one was a keeper. Pretty soon, we realized that we didn't want to be apart any longer. Within eight months of rekindling our friendship, Dave proposed, and I wholeheartedly accepted. Three months after that, we were married. But I'm not going to lie, that first year of marriage was really tough. I didn't realize that my new role as wife would also consist of being the house cleaner, bill payer, and schedule manager for the two of us. I had just mastered those responsibilities for myself. But Dave was worth it all. His cunning sense of humor kept me rolling with laughter. His willingness to try anything pushed me to explore the world in new ways. And my family fully and readily embraced him, drawn to his kind and generous spirit. We had been married for a little over a year when Dave dropped the first two bombshells on our marriage. Dave confessed that he was addicted to prescription painkillers. In fact, he had been abusing them throughout our entire relationship. What started as a curiosity turned into a way to get through 12-hour shifts at work and then quickly escalated into a $100 a day addiction. After three years of managing his addiction, he had finally reached the point where he felt out of control. He wanted to stop and knew that he couldn't do it on his own. Within a few days, his family and I checked him into a rehab facility. Ten days later, Dave was released from rehab to start his sobriety in the real world. His days were filled with narcotics, anonymous meetings, a trips to the gym. My days were filled with conflicting thoughts of wanting to be 100% supportive of Dave, but wondering when things would be about us and not just about him. It was a daily struggle for both of us. A couple months after that, Dave dropped the second bombshell on our marriage. He had been having a physical relationship with one of his coworkers for several months. I asked him if he wanted to fight to save our marriage, and he replied that he didn't want to be married anymore. And just like that, it was over for us. If he wasn't willing to fight, there was nothing left for me to fight for either. I soon realized that even though we'd only been married for 18 months, it was going to take much longer than that to process through my feelings of betrayal, loss, and injustice. I began attending support meetings for family and friends of addicts. I found myself surrounded by other wives, mothers, and girlfriends who could relate experiences and pain. I was also confronted with the message that only Jesus could heal my brokenness. Only he had the power to make me whole. Most people in circumstances like mine feel lost, but I can honestly say that I've been found found by a God who can make all things, even this, work together for my good. And in a strange way, I've come to see these experiences as a gift, a gift of learning how to trust in God and rely on him fully.
I also realize that this gift does not come without its own demands. Now that I know the truth of God's love and acceptance, I am responsible to uphold it in my actions and decisions as I move forward in this next phase of my life. People who have known God over the centuries, really known him, have unanimously agreed that our God is a profoundly generous God. Especially if you look at worldviews of ancient civilizations, people have not always agreed that God is generous. Oftentimes they've come to the idea that God is capricious, that he does what he wants, that it's sometimes random. But those who have really known God have known that he was generous. I love what the Apostle Paul said in one of his letters to a group of Christians in the ancient city of Colossae. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So God made everything. Now, this isn't just a a spiritual platitude for the Apostle Paul, especially given the worldview that surrounded him. This is really a daring philosophical position. He is suggesting that everything had an origin and everything was created for purpose and that everything was given to us. Everything comes to us as a gift, having been created and bestowed on us. Power, authority, given by God. You know, as I was thinking about this this week, I remembered even things like, you know, not just our talents and our material possessions, but even things like our sense of smell. I thought of that because my wife Diane, some of you know, if you know Diane, for many years now, she's kind of been losing and has almost lost her sense of smell. And We raised three boys and she had a husband. So there were periods of time when that wasn't such a bad thing. But often, for Diane, this was the grief that she lost her sense of smell. And we were reminded of something that you and I spend our entire lives and never think about. Our sense of smell is a gift from God. And then Paul takes this daring philosophical proposition and he applies it in a a kind of incredible way one time when he's talking to one of his mentees a guy named Timothy he says this to Timothy Timothy command those who are rich in this present world and that's you and I that's people who live in Loudoun County command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth and look at this not because wealth is a terrible thing not because money is awful it's because Money is so uncertain. But to put their hope in God, and don't you love this? Who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Okay, this Advent season here at Gateway, this month, we're celebrating God's generosity by looking at the sometimes surprising nature of God's gifts to us. Today we're going to look at the nature of God as a demanding giver. Now, this sounds awkward, doesn't it? Somebody's thinking, wait, wait, I thought giving was supposed to be unconditional, especially from God. But that's not exactly the right way to look at it. It turns out that God has very definite expectations, even demands. And his gifts have a way of imposing those demands on us. In the long run, of course, always for the better. We're going to read a fascinating exchange today between Jesus and a man named Zacchaeus, 
that illustrates the demanding nature, the demanding nature of God's gifts to us and his love for us. So look, let's go old school out of reverence for God's word. Would you stand with me as we look at Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10? If you have a Bible, would you look at this, Luke 19, 1 through 10, and you can also dial in on your phone, Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. This is an incredible exchange between Jesus and a guy named Zacchaeus, whom he doesn't know, evidently, before this encounter. So Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he couldn't because of the crowd. So he ran ahead, knew the path that Jesus was taking, climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, Jesus looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come on down right now. Come on down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Now, we don't know what happened before this. We don't know if Jesus has had an exchange with Zacchaeus. We don't know all that he knows about Zacchaeus. But clearly, not much. This is really a pretty remarkable exchange. So Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed Jesus. Now, all the people saw this and began to mutter, look, (laughs) he's gone to be the guest of Zacchaeus. Does he realize who and what? Zacchaeus is despicable, and he's a loser, and Zacchaeus is a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Today, salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Okay, you may be seated. All right, here's the lesson for us. In Zacchaeus' story, if you miss everything else, don't miss this. We must let go of what enslaves us in order to hold on to what sets us free. We must let go of what enslaves us in order to lay hold of what sets us free. Here's how this scene happens. They didn't have suburbs in the ancient Near East, but if they had, Jericho would have been a suburb of Jerusalem. It was 10 to 15 miles outside of Jerusalem, and Jericho was a very wealthy area. Increasingly, it was an area where Roman occupation forces would stay, sometimes even vacation. It was warmer during the winter than Jerusalem itself was. So during the winter, Jericho had become the winter capital of the entire area, the area of uh, Judea. Herod the Great, in fact, built a great winter palace, and uh, archaeologists have dug up these things, elaborate fountains and gardens in the center of Jericho. And also, just outside of Jericho, there were rich balsam groves. And those balsam groves were exported throughout the ancient Near East. So there was a heavy tax on balsam products that brought in quite a bit of income to Rome and to the Jericho area. So tax collecting in Jericho was very lucrative business. 
Now, there are three characters that have always captured the imagination of folks. If you grew up in church at all, you may remember this story from hearing it as a little kid. And there, there seem to be three main characters that capture people's imagination when they hear this story. Jesus and the sycamore tree and Zacchaeus. So Jesus, we understand, is passing through. Evidently, Jesus had not, certainly hadn't necessarily made plans to stay in Jericho, but something about the exchange uh, the encounter with Zacchaeus makes Jesus pl- change his plans. The other thing to know about Jesus at this point is, I've said this before, at this point in his ministry, Jesus is a rock star. So everywhere Jesus goes, large crowds meet him. They're there before he gets there. Rumors of Jesus coming would attract a large crowd at this point. Now, sycamore trees, I think you'll have to ask someone like Eric Saunders, but I think sycamore trees are in the oak family, except they're shorter, squattier, and they've got thicker foliage, and they were uh, fruit-bearing. Sycamore trees were planted along the, the roads and pathways of many areas in the ancient Near East, especially in Palestine, because they grew very well there. They provided shade. They became markers along the road. They were especially planted in wealthy areas, an area like Jericho. So because the path is marked out, you know, they know the road. Zacchaeus knows where Jesus is going. So Zacchaeus goes ahead of Jesus and and climbs up a sycamore tree so that he... Now, this is not like a giant tree, but this does give Zacchaeus a bird's eye view of Jesus approaching. And it also gives Jesus, a bird's eye view of Zacchaeus as he approaches the spot. Zacchaeus, we're told here, is not just tax collector, but Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector. You may know that tax collectors were typically despised by the local populace in Palestine. Tax collectors were Roman collaborators And Romans were an occupying force in Palestine. In fact, throughout most of what is modern Europe and the ancient, the modern-day Near East, Rome was an occupying force. Now look, not everybody hated Rome. Rome brought some advantages. They brought stability. They brought protection. They brought a good road system. They brought an adequate justice system. But if you didn't want to be occupied, if you felt like that you could provide those things for yourself, which Israel had in its history, then you were no fan of Rome, and that meant you really were no fan of tax collectors. The entire Roman system of occupation, the occupation forces, and the roads that they built were supported by taxes that they collected from the local people. So, you know, Rome wasn't supplying money. They weren't giving money to these outlying areas. They were collecting taxes from these outlying areas, and they were using those taxes to support their own troops and to build roads into the area. So tax collectors were people who were collecting from the local population and giving a part of those proceeds to Rome in order to support Roman occupation. You can get a sense there of how they might have felt. Now, the worst of the tax collectors would become elaborately wealthy by overcharging people for their taxes, and then they would keep the overcharge, and the local population, of course, knew this. So there is this 
incredible exchange between Jesus and Zacchaeus, in which Jesus sees Zacchaeus up in the sycamore tree, says, hey, Zacchaeus, come on down, let's hang out. And Zacchaeus is overwhelmed. Perhaps Zacchaeus has heard Jesus' teaching before, but for whatever reason, whatever the calculus, what we know here is that Zacchaeus is radically changed. Zacchaeus has a heart change. What Zacchaeus offers to do here is, you know, not just a show of how religious I am. In fact, Zacchaeus goes way beyond what the law required and what he says to Jesus he's going to do. He says to Jesus, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. Never a requirement of the law. The law laid out very, very specific requirements for people to take care of the poor leaving the edges of their field unharvested so that the poor could come and gather from the edges of their field, giving regularly to the temple what amounted to the tenth of their income so that that could take care of both the temple and then be given to help with the poor. In fact, according to some Old Testament scholars, if you add it all up, including all that they contributed to the sacrificial system, some have suggested that the average Israelite, if he was to keep the law fully, would give away as much as 21% of his income. But Zacchaeus offers here to give immediately today half of all that he has to the poor. And then beyond that, Zacchaeus says, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. According to Leviticus 6.5, if there has been some dishonesty, here's the prescription. Leviticus 6.5 says this, they must make restitution in full, add a fifth to the value of it, and give it to the owner on the day they present their guilt offering. So here's how it would work. Let's say, for example, Rob Showers has cheated someone out of $100. I don't pick on Rob because he's a lawyer. That's just completely coincidental. But let's say that Rob has cheated someone by $100. On the day that Rob goes to make his guilt offering at the temple, Rob brings his offering to the temple, and on that day, he's to find the person that he has cheated $100, and he's to give them the $100 back plus a fifth. So Rob will give the person that he's cheated $120. What Zacchaeus has offered to do is Zacchaeus has said, if anybody out there accuses me of cheating them out of $100, I'll give them $400. Jesus recognizes that Zacchaeus has experienced a real heart change. Jesus recognizes genuine faith here. This is what he means when he calls him a son of Abraham. Jesus isn't just finding some new clever way to explain what it means to have a connection with God, and he was often doing that. You know, Jesus invented images like, you know, really, if you're going to really get it, you've got to be, it's like you've got to be born again. Even the word saved, the way they use the word saved and the way Jesus uses the word salvation here, you can tell these guys are ransacking the language to look for ways to explain this incredible encounter with God. But that's not all that Jesus is doing here. Jesus means this in a very technical sense. He's not just rubbing it in the face of the local Jews. This guy's a Jew as well. Don't forget that. He's suggesting that Zacchaeus, because of the heart changed evidenced in Zacchaeus' attitude here, 
This guy is a man of faith. This is faith at work, you guys. He's the son of Abraham, the father of faith. Jesus recognizes genuine faith here. That's what he means when he calls him the son of Abraham. Jesus doesn't praise Zacchaeus because of his offer to do good. He praises Zacchaeus because he recognizes that Zacchaeus has experienced a real change of heart. That's where the offer to do good comes from. Hold on, we're getting to the point. Listen, salvation didn't come to Zacchaeus because he did some good thing. Salvation came because his offer to do good work was an obvious expression of a changed and thankful heart. Let's lay that as a foundation. I'm going to say it again. And I'm going to make a statement that I don't want us to forget. Salvation didn't come to Zacchaeus because he did some good thing. Salvation, encounter with God, experience with God, and real connection with God. It came because his offer to do good work was an obvious expression of a changed and thankful heart. Zacchaeus had a change of heart. Let's don't forget this. We don't ever encounter God and remain the same. So as you're evaluating friends, as you're evaluating people you know, as you're evaluating yourself, as you're evaluating loved ones, let's recognize the absolute, inevitable, inviolable principle. When we encounter God, really encounter God, we're changed. This is God's demand. We get changed. For Zacchaeus, his values have changed. His view toward money, his view toward his fellow Jews, his view toward his own future have all changed. And as a result, Zacchaeus has a, a, a brand new spirit of openness and generosity. Everything I own, I'm going to half of it to the poor today. Anybody, people can hear him. He's saying this out loud. If I've cheated anyone out of anything, I'm going to give it back four times. Here's the point. This is inevitable. This is what God requires. God doesn't touch our lives and leave us unchanged. We must let go of what enslaves us in order to lay hold of what sets us free. It's inevitable. We can't move into a connection with God without letting go of what has kept us disconnected. Zacchaeus surrenders what he has. It's no longer his. In fact, he's going to give half of it away immediately. This demand is a familiar theme in the teaching of Jesus. One chapter before this, we get the encounter that some of you are familiar with. It happened in an area near where Jesus is now. These two guys may have known one another. A rich young guy who was a project manager for a large Northern Virginia defense contractor. But he's also a very good guy, and he's, he's got a nice home in Loudoun County, and he loves his kids. He's very invested. And he's a spiritual seeker. And he goes to Jesus because he's heard Jesus teach before, I believe, and he's heard something in Jesus. <laughs> it's more remarkable than anything he's ever heard. He recognizes that <laughs> this rabbi is different. So he goes to Jesus, and he's in a somewhat intimate setting. He's not real familiar with Jesus. He raises his hand, and Jesus says, yeah, what's up? And this guy said, look, if I want to really get it, if I want to gain a kind of life that's eternal, if I want to go to another level, 
and just who I am and who I was designed to be and in my connection with God and experience, you know, a glimpse of eternity. What do I do? I think Jesus provokes him. Well, let's see. If you look at the back half of the Ten Commandments, that's the part that's all about your relationships with other people. So, you know, don't covet. Little need for this guy to covet. He's got everything. Don't murder. And, you know, honor your father and mother and be faithful to your wife and keep those commandments. And this guy says, I've done that since I was a young boy. And I still don't have... I've known people, Jesus, who have a sense of, of peace that, and, and meaning and connection that I don't have, and I still don't have that. And Jesus says, well, okay, sell everything you own. Monetize it. Give it to the poor. And come follow me. And you're going to get everything, everything you're looking for. <laughs> Jesus was offering this man a gift, but it was a demanding gift. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus is talking about his own purpose and direction. He's, t- he's told his disciples, look, you know, part of the deal with my connection and me being here, what I'm headed toward is not, I'm not going to be king. We're not taking over Rome. I'm going to die. And then he says to his disciples, he looks at his disciples, he says, look, Whoever wants to be my student and really be all in with me, I'm their rabbi and we're all going to find out together eventually a lot more. But if you want to be my student, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross, the instrument of your own death, daily. And you have to follow me. Once again, illustrating just how demanding God's gift to us is. God offers us the gift of life, joy, and meaning. We've been around long enough to know that it's not constant. We're not without trial. But we have a deeper sense of joy. We have a deeper sense of life. We have a real sense of meaning and purpose and connection. He offers us real connection with himself. And he offers to help make us what we were designed to be. But in order to take God up on that offer, he demands that we lay down everything we're currently holding on to. So honestly, I think of Gary Snyder. Those of you who were here in November, you may remember Gary's story. Gary was a Northern Virginia computer guy. He had a good job, nice home in Percival. In fact, he was on the plane one time, I think, going to see a client. And he ended up seeing an article. Was it Time Magazine, Rob? Or do you remember? Some magazine. He ends up seeing an article about orphans in Zambia. And he starts weeping. He's overwhelmed. He doesn't know why. His heart has changed. Eventually, Gary would leave life as he knows it, (laughs) completely, and start an organization called Every Orphan's Hope that is changing the face of Zambia, the country. And I'm not overstating. I think of Ina York. Ina York had a teaching job in Rhode Island that she loved. 
She went on a short-term mission trip to the Dominican Republic, and it was a really good trip, a trip with an organization called Time Ministries. They bring volunteers from North America down the DR to minister to poor people there. And on one of her last weeks in the DR, she went out to a little village, a village of what Ina will call the forgotten people. They're probably mostly Haitian immigrants who have illegally crossed the border into the DR, and the DR tries to make sure that these folks don't have access to all that the DR offers, which, let's face it, is pretty limited. The DR is a fairly third-world country anyway. But because they're not born in a hospital, they don't get an official card, and they can't go to school, and they can't vote, and they have no rights. They're people that don't exist. And there's a whole village of these folks called Circadio. And when Ina went out to visit the village of Circadio, her impression was... I'm home. She left, she left her life in the United States, sold everything she owned, and moved to the Dominican Republic and started a ministry to the village of Circadia. I think of many of you. You haven't moved to the DR, but you've reordered your lives because your values have been changed. In fact, Some of you who are young, you're making decisions about your future on the basis of Jesus' values. You make decisions not based simply on what's most expedient or most comfortable for you, but you make decisions based on what you believe God is asking of you. So, some of you, maybe most of you, perhaps all of us, are in the midst of of that kind of decision-making process right now. Really, this is what growing in a connection with God involves. If we're going to grow more and more like Christ, it means more and more letting go of what enslaves us and taking up, laying hold of what sets us free, which is himself. So, I'm talking to some of us this morning who need to let go of a worry or a job or in anger, or a relationship. I'm talking to some today who need to give elaborately. There is a Zacchaeus in here this morning. It's the end of the year. You don't need to give $100, because that would be a really nice thing for you to do, to Every Orphan's Hope. And if you'd like to, talk to Rob. Rob, raise your hand. If you'd like to, talk to Rob. Or to the Circadia Project, all the way in the back. Rhonda, if you would, raise your hand. You can speak to Rhonda about the Circadia Project. You can email us, Rhonda at gatewaychurch.org, to find out how to give. Or we're building a building at Gateway Community Church. You could give to the building campaign here. But you don't need to give $100. You need to put, some of you need to put another zero on that. And there are a few of you in here this morning that need to put two zeros on it. You need to give $10,000 because your heart has changed. Your values are set by heaven, not by what's comfortable and expedient for you. You don't give in a way that's safe. You give in a way that allows you to stretch out and express His heart of generosity. Some of you need to confess and wage war against a sinful pattern or habit in your life. There's an organization called Celebrate Recovery, which deals with helping people, establishing a basic pattern of discipleship and relationship and connection with Him. 
Paul Houdershell, you raise your hand. If you want to hear about Celebrate Recovery, talk to Paul Houdershell. Some of you need to confess and wage war this morning. You need to begin that process. I had a conversation with a young woman some time ago. She was just north of her 30th birthday, and this felt extremely significant to her. She was in relationship with a young man who was a wonderful young man, and it was a good relationship, but there was something about the relationship that gnawed at her. It was not a relationship that encouraged her connection with God, and she started to feel like, it's not exactly what I want, and it's not exactly how I see my life stretching out in front of me. So she began to work and pray and be patient and wait for this young man to engage and d- develop his own connection with God. They've uh, been to a variety of churches in the area, and they've had some really good conversations, and, and he's an extraordinarily good person, but just did not yet feel like they were on the same page spiritually. What can I do, Pastor Ed, to help encourage change? What can I do to help get this moving in a Godward, God-honoring direction? What do I need to do? And so I said to this young woman, do you know the story of the rich young ruler? This a guy comes to Jesus, and he's a really good guy. And in fact, he's a seeker, and he comes to Jesus because of his admiration for Jesus, and he's asking exactly the right question. You know, how do I really get it? And Jesus, I, wanna, you know, I want all that God has for me, and, and how do I embrace that, and how do I make that happen, and uh, what do I do? And Jesus tells him his commandments, oh, I've done that, okay, well now, you know, sell all that you have, give to the poor, come follow me, because I mean, it, it is about being all in. And the rich young ruler walked away. This young woman looked at me sad, and she said, are you saying that he's like the rich young ruler? And I said, no, you are. We have to let go of everything that enslaves us in order to take up what sets us free. All right, we can't leave this topic, let's end, but we can't leave this topic without making an important observation. And when we finish, I want us to do some business this morning with God, all of us individually. I don't want to end without making a final, really important observation for us. I think you and I have to face the fact, I think if we're going to be real about our spiritual lives and about our connection with God, I think you and I, maybe as much as anybody that any of us know, I think you and I, because we live in suburban Washington, D.C., because we have very good jobs, we're very, very well educated, and we make a lot of money, because we live in really nice homes, most of us have as many cars as there are people in our home. I think you and I have to face the fact that You can't be a Christian and live in suburban America. It's impossible. There is too much that the world demands of you. You have too much money. There is too much that you can build your life on that has nothing to do with God. There is too much comfort. There is too much distance from actual physical need.
How many times a year are you around someone who has desperate physical need? 90% of the world lives that way, and you and I are completely insulated from that desperate need. You can't be a Christian and live in suburban America. This is what Jesus said to the rich young ruler. And I think social and political conservatives, when they're at their worst, they radically violate this principle. They completely ignore the generosity that God demands of us. They ignore God's demands to help others, and they feel deep in their hearts like, I did it, so can you. Tighten up your bootstraps and go to work. And I think social and political liberals completely miss this and bastardize this by trying to impose generosity. They try to get government to do what only a real change of heart can do. Nobody gets it right. It is impossible to be a Christian and live in the American suburbs. And unless you try to wrestle with that, you have not heard Jesus. But let's recognize that one chapter after Jesus says what he says to the rich young ruler and to us, he does the impossible with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is an extremely wealthy guy. In fact, he blows the rich young ruler away. He's the wealthiest guy in the county. And he finds freedom. He finds connection. Living in the suburbs. We don't get the sense that Zacchaeus moved. Zacchaeus didn't go to Zambia. Zacchaeus gave to Jericho and he stayed in Jericho and he started a foundation that helped all the poor in the area. And if anyone was cheated out of anything by Zacchaeus, all they needed to do was go tell him because Zacchaeus' heart had been changed. Because you don't have an encounter with God and stay the same. This is Jesus' main business. To find those who are most desperately enslaved and set them free. So if we're going to do this, if we're going to be all that we were designed to be, if we're going to be free, then we need Jesus. But there's a warning. An encounter with Jesus comes with a high demand. And it leaves us radically changed. I want my life only a little better is not a deal that Jesus makes with anyone. Let's pray. Okay, let's stand together. Don't waste these next few minutes. I want all of us to do some business with God. I don't know how it is that He may have spoken to any of us this morning, but I know that it was His intention to speak. I don't know if you this morning are feeling like Zacchaeus, and praise the Lord if you are. I don't know if you're like one of the people in the crowd who's curious, and, but at a distance, and you're seeing real life change, and you're saying, oh, that guy's a sinner. I don't know if you didn't show up to the event. <laughs> you missed Jesus altogether. And this morning, you kind of are seeing him for the first time or seeing him for the first time in a long time. But I want you to do some business. Uh, a heart, kind of at the center of what worship is. Worship is uh, offering all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of God. So let's do this for a few minutes. We're going to just, but I want us to do uh, some business now. So uh, we got a couple of songs we're going to sing together and use these, leverage these songs as a minute to do some work with God. Um, 
And I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll go. God, we thank you for your faithfulness and your, uh, your generosity to us. And we are so grateful for the ways that you've blessed us, but we recognize that that blessing, that gift comes with a demand on us. Help us to wrestle with what you are asking from us and what you want to do through us. May we, even people who don't know you, realize that there's something about Christmas. And I pray that you would use us to to point others in your direction. Jesus, we ask that you would go with us this week, and we pray in your name. Amen. Thanks. Have a great week.